0: Welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm your host, Lance Thurner. Today I'm going to be talking with Kate Irvin, Associate Professor of International Development Studies and Faculty Associate of the School of the Environment at St. Mary's University in Halifax. And we'll be talking to her about her new book, Carbon, out in 2018 by Polity Press. And Carbon is an excellent addition to our evolving efforts to understand clearly where we are and where we need to go in regards to climate change. With clear insight and deep experience in the field, Irvin describes how and why politics as usual has so far failed to prevent disaster and delves deep into the technological fixes that will and must be part of the human response to climate change. But ultimately, she argues, preventing full-scale disaster will require far more fundamental changes to global politics and economy. I am very pleased to be sharing my interview with her today, and I hope you enjoy it. Professor Kate Irvin, uh, welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, and uh, I'm very Thanks for pleased having to have me. you. Uh, so I'd like to start off this interview with just a little bit about your background and uh, the path that eventually brought you to writing this book.
1: Yeah, there's, um, well, I mean, I guess one of the good places to start is what brought me to to research that allowed me to start thinking about this question of carbon more broadly. Um And I would say that, you know, that goes back to a time when I was working on my uh, PhD in political science, actually. And I was at York University in Ontario in Canada. And um, I was looking at uh, biodiversity conservation globally and looking at global institutions that were involved in biodiversity conservation. uh, And then kind of wanting to take it down to the local level level. On the ground where it was actually happening. Um, and so for me, that was in Chiapas, Mexico. And so I spent uh, a good chunk of time in Chiapas looking at uh, a particular project called the Mexico Mesoamerican Biological Corridor. And I was looking at the implementation of this biodiversity conservation project that was uh, run through the Global Environment Facility, was being implemented by the World Bank. And one of the things that that I was particularly interested in was uh, what was a pretty clear disconnect between what was being said and what was happening at the global level um, versus what was happening locally in Chiapas. Um, and so, at the kind of international level, institutions treated biodiversity loss um, and its conservation as this—you know—you could basically have a universal blueprint um, that you could take anywhere in the world. Any community, any nation, whatever it might be, um, and say here's here 's the projects that will protect your biodiversity uh, and I was also interested in the fact that these tend to be market based projects, so the idea that if you create a market for biodiversity, then you 're putting a value on it and and we will then save it so I was skeptical, I must admit, um, because Chiapas Mexico has a very long history of um, uh, problems uh, in 1994, there was an indigenous uprising, uh, problems around land distribution and the best land being held by uh, the wealthy and the elite. Uh, and so the problems ran very deep, but the project wasn't addressing any of that deep political history that led to you know land being cleared in the rainforest uh, and why people might be going in and claiming that land. And in fact the government encouraged people to go in to claim the land. In the Lacandon Jungle, because they didn't want to deal with land reform, but there's also resource extraction um, and, and various other things going on. So I was interested in looking at, okay, what's actually happening on the ground? And It turned out there wasn't really much happening on the ground because of this big disconnect where local people were saying, "No, no, we want to deal with the land issue before we deal with biodiversity." Um, so things things were pretty rocky. Um, and I was interested in this question of participation, how groups were participating in the project because it was supposed to be highly participatory, but we didn't see much of that happening. So long story short, while I was there doing that research, um, there were some communities that were beginning to participate in carbon forestry, um, which has kind of gained in popularity, but still, you know, I would say most people don't know much about it. um but this you know idea that Trees sequester carbon. So if you plant trees, you can sequester carbon. Um, And what would then happen with these projects is that uh, you'd have to calculate how much carbon was going to be stored in those trees. And then they could be awarded, or the communities that were participating, or the actors participating, would be awarded uh, carbon credits or carbon offsets. And what this would allow for was countries... Or companies in the global north in particular, rather than reducing their carbon emissions at the source, they could buy these carbon offsets from a community in Mexico or other places um, that uh, planted some trees. And increasingly now we're seeing the idea that you don't cut your trees, so maintaining trees as well, um, but it's still a very controversial kind of project. Um, But basically, the idea is that these communities could then sell carbon offsets to emitters who could, instead of actually lowering their emissions, they could say, um, look, we lowered our emissions, but they did it through buying these offsets. So, you know, there's a problem there, which I can talk more about, uh, you know, as we go on. Um, But I was curious and and I was curious um, and I wasn't doing research on these projects, but I, I was interested in what was going on. And so I started looking at, okay, well, what's this global carbon market thing that's happening? Um, and I became increasingly interested because uh, what I saw was that the price of carbon uh, in, in global markets, and predominantly at that time, it was in the European Union Emissions Trading System, which is the largest carbon market in the world, um, and also in the Clean Development Mechanism, which is a global offsetting mechanism that was developed under the Kyoto Protocol that allowed countries in the global south, to create offsets, to sell to Kyoto countries uh, that had compliance targets. And so I was wondering what was going on because the price of carbon started to drop on the international market uh, and quite a bit. And so at that time for me, I was especially interested in questions around, well, what does it mean for local communities that have been told, you know, hey, look, here's a a development project. You're going to earn a lot of money um, by you know, planting trees or whatever it might be, which also comes with risks or, or problems because it means you can't use your your trees or your resources the way you normally have as a community. Um, but when that price crashes, well, what does that mean for the community that's suddenly not getting the money that they were told that they would get? So that then led me to um, start to look in more detail at the global carbon market and say, okay, what is this thing? Why has it been developed? um and why is the price crashing and how effective is that for dealing with climate change if we have really volatile low prices uh when the whole point is to make it expensive so i about 10 years ago i got involved in a research project around um studying carbon markets globally and looking at their development in different jurisdictions around the world And looking, for me, uh, rather than it being kind of a technical, okay, how is it designed? What does it look like? I'm interested in the politics around, you know, well, why does a government or why do, you know, global institutions choose carbon trading versus other strategies that might do better? Uh, So what are the interests there? Um, And how effective is it? And why do they get designed in a way that makes them pretty ineffectual? That, that doesn't do what we're told they're supposed to do. So that project, you know, has been going on for about 10 years now. Um, and so then where the book uh, fits in is that uh, it's part of Polity Press's resources series. So they, you know, they, they've got a whole host of different kinds of resources that people have written about. Uh, coffee, water, oil, coal, diamonds. Uh, and so... Uh, I decided to do the, you know, to submit a proposal for the the carbon book to really start thinking about these bigger questions around carbon as a resource. So the book itself goes beyond carbon trading and that specific project I've been doing to, to kind of explore the bigger picture about carbon. Um, and then I would say, you know, part of the background that I also, you know, is interesting for me. And I, I actually, in uh, the first chapter, start the book off with the fact that, you know, my own background. I come from an industrial, uh, town where, you know, when I was a university student, I worked at General Motors for three summers working on the line and my dad had worked there and, you know, it was very good unionized work and the pay was really good to pay for university. And then, uh, as a graduate student, I worked in a steel mill for two years working within the mill, um, and again, very good pay, and it helped me to pay for my graduate studies. And so it's an interesting thing, I think, to reflect upon the fact that we as individuals are kind of deeply uh, involved and ensnared in a system that, you know, these are two of the most carbon-intensive industries in the world, uh, vehicle manufacturing and steel. Um, And, you know, I needed to pay for school and my family needed to pay to feed us and to clothe us. And so it's not, the, which, you know, many people will know this, but at the same time, it, it's, it's a very complicated problem we're talking about because our lives are deeply wrapped up in the system we've created that is one that is just dripping with carbon. So that's kind of where the, the background that brought me to the book.
0: Yeah. Well, that's a great introduction. So, you know, I really enjoyed this book. Um, it's very readable. And one of the things that's very useful about it is um, the the great overview it gives, both of kind of the technical side of, of global warming, but also the history of the, uh, the politics of it, you know, since before Kyoto Protocol. Uh, and I can really yeah. imagine using this in an undergraduate classroom or something like that, um, to give students a, a great overview of that. Um, is that the use you were imagining for this book or uh, what kind of audience did you have in mind?
1: Yeah, well, that's certainly one of them. Uh, you know, the the publisher itself, they want these books to be more broadly accessible than a kind of narrow academic book that might only appeal to people who are really kind of immersed in, in a specific theory or approach or, or issue. And so I wanted to write the book so that it could, so that its reach could be, you know, go beyond academia, but at the same time, so thinking about academic targets, uh, absolutely, like undergraduate students. Um, and, you know, I I see it as a great kind of introduction for students in the social sciences too, to think about, you know, here's some of the, the, the science issues, or the the science behind climate change, although it's science light, I'm not a physical scientist, obviously. Um, but here's kind of what the problem is, what we need to understand, and then we can get into the what this what us we we as social scientists do and think about the whys and the hows. Um, but then also, you know, I've talked to some people who teach science classes, saying, "Well, this is great for my students because." it introduces them to the political questions uh, around climate change and why it's been so hard to actually deal with this thing. Um, But beyond that, I, I wanted there to be appeal so that, you know, people outside of the academic world could also pick it up and read it. And it wasn't going to be too technical or too theoretical so that they could actually, you know, engage with the questions of carbon and the issues of carbon and the politics of carbon, um, in a way that might be useful for them in their own lives.
0: Great, um, thank, thanks for that. So, um, one of the things I really enjoyed in this book was uh, tracing the development of the idea of climate justice as it's changed and as the political dynamics of uh, climate change have has changed and as uh, as climate change has really entered the mainstream of uh political discourse, how do you see this idea is really developing over the last um yeah I suppose it's thirty years now
1: right around climate justice and environmental justice yes um yeah i mean it's it's an important one because I think too many of our discussions around issue problems like climate change um still don't come to terms with the question of justice and, and, justice isn't at the heart of that discussion. And so, you know, the early environmental justice movement really looking at communities, um, of, you know, you know, marginalized populations, um, you know, looking at the racial aspect of, of environmental harm and that, you know, recognizing that minority communities are, are impacted to a much greater extent because they tend to be uh, living closer to toxic hotspots and all of the places that are more heavily polluted. And there's a real politics around that. And then, you know, thinking about climate change and and borrowing from those insights uh, around environmental justice that we've seen from movements, but also the academic literature, um, people are beginning to really apply the ideas in terms of climate change, because there's so many different angles we can look at, whether it's historically to say that the injustice of, you know, it's somewhat simple to just say North versus South, because I think it's a bit more complicated than that. And I think that's rooted in class relations and everything else. Um, But to look at the historical inequity and historical responsibility, and who's done most of the emitting historically, and to say that, you know, by all rights, it's those that have done the least that should have the right to the remaining carbon space. Politics doesn't allow for that, but that's a reality. And then on the other hand, the impacts that we're starting to see uh, around the world from climate change, it's the poorest and the most vulnerable in communities of color that are being more heavily impacted in the here and now. Um, And it doesn't mean, and so I, you know, I I talk about this idea that, you know, many people say climate change is the great equalizer because we're all going to experience it. And that's true to a certain extent, but at the same time, uh, you know, it's more vulnerable communities that won't have insurance that don't have access to the resources to weather the storm that won't have the money to buy the food when their crops fail and so it really has this significant class and race and gender and many more you know lines of impression that component is really significant and so i think those you know ideas that came from the environmental justice movement uh, are now you know, being used to talk about climate justice and to say that, you know, this whole thing is about massive levels of injustice, and we have to take great care to make sure that our solutions don't replicate the injustices because that's another aspect of it. If we're going to have policies that simply replicate uh, injustices and that don't help those that are being hurt the most, then. I- I don't want to pursue those ones. I think we need to, to, you know, look for better models. And and I think, you know, following things like the Green New Deal uh, debates that are happening right now in the U.S., well, I mean, that really tries to put, you know, environmental justice and climate justice within the the policy proposals. And so I, I think that, you know, the idea, it's time has come. And more and more people recognize that.
0: Yeah. You know, in the bigger international scene, the the idea of climate justice does often get put in this, uh, in this dualism of, of the global south and the global north. Um, do you see that as an idea that's um, still useful and is going to stick around? Or do you think that we're going to see different ways of looking at uh, the global dynamics of climate justice?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's a certain inevitability that we will continue to use the North-South distinction in terms of talking about climate change because of the the historical responsibility, I would say, uh, you know, of the countries, the advanced capitalist developed countries that have benefited from carbon intensive development to a much greater extent. And so I think that's inevitable in terms of that divide. And I think that it's also inevitable just in terms of if we look at the conference of the parties that just took place in Poland in December, you know, many were saying after the Paris Agreement um, in 2015 that the differentiation between North and South, while it obviously didn't disappear the Paris Agreement was doing away with, to a a significant extent, that divide. And yet what we saw in this past round of negotiations where they were supposed to finalize the Paris rulebook, um, that divide was one of the main issues and sticking points. Because countries in the global south, and I think justifiably so, now there's distinctions, of course, So does China, you know, is China the same as uh, Guatemala? Clearly not. Um, But countries negotiating as a block from the global south continue to point to the fact that countries in the global north have not taken on their historical responsibility. They have not lowered their emissions um, consistent with what the science is telling us. They're not providing climate finance anywhere near what is required to help countries in the global south uh, develop differently. And so many of them say, look, you're not willing to walk the walk. The problem originated with your development model. And therefore, unless you actually provide sufficient finance and show us that you're willing to to undertake the, the changes that are required, how can you tell us we must do it differently? I think that's just an an inevitability that we can't get away from. I think at the same time, um, increasingly, many are recognizing that, you know in terms of of climate justice and injustices, we can also look to communities in the global north that are marginalized that are bearing a much greater impact from climate disasters uh, and from climate change. And so, I think there's also that kind of looking at the different kind of vectors of oppression whereby we say that this is also about, and I think, you know, things like Occupy Wall Street and the discourse around the 1% that emerged, and every year Oxfam releases a port, uh, its its report talking about the wealth inequalities in the world. And I think that discourse helps to kind of change things to recognize that the 1% um, – you know, broadly speaking, they're present in every country around the world. Um, And you also have people everywhere around the world who are suffering. And so that allows us to also um, appreciate that a a simple north-south divide isn't always helpful, even though there's aspects of it that remain very relevant.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, this is a good way To get to the next question or the next issue I want to ask you about. So because this, you know, the internal diversity of of these nations uh, really brings into Mm -hmm. question whether or not, um, you know, nations are the are the right political entities to be. um, uh, uh, To be mediating our our reactions to climate change. And of course, the U.S.'s, uh, you know, recent pullout from the Paris Protocol really brings into question whether or not national governments are up to the challenge at all or whether they even have the tools to really adequately respond to climate change. And so I'm wondering a little bit both about your thoughts on that question, uh, but also where else we're seeing, um, you know, meaningful action on climate change.
1: Yeah, but that's, I mean, it's, a, it's such an important question because this problem is so big and so pervasive that, you know, how do you deal with it effectively? And I think many, you know, especially there's a, a whole scholarly literature, literature around the fact that um, climate action is happening at many different levels. It's not just the nation state anymore. And so you see non-state actors or you see subnational actors, so... You know, people often point to, you know, California, what it's doing against the tide of of Trump's anti-climate change, anti-environmental kind of uh, approach. Um, and so from my own perspective, I mean, you know, and I, I've thought a lot about, like, what is the nation state and, and what is government or what should it be? And there's a big divide or, you know, separating out what, We want it to be and what it should be versus what it is, I think is one of the important starting points. And I I think I try to underscore this in the book as well. I mean, if we look to Canada right now, where I am, um, you know, there's huge uh, debates and protest and controversy around pipelines. Um, And these pipelines are dealing predominantly with Extracting tar sands oil out of Alberta um, to then be, you know, shipped to various markets, including markets in Asia. And one of the big arguments is that, you know, in Alberta um, they're landlocked; they need the pipelines. Um, but then the science is quite clear on the fact that tar sands oil, given its its significant carbon intensity relative to other kinds of oil, it, it can't be extracted. That doesn't mean it's not going to be, but, and so we have this huge problem and I'm actually very sympathetic with the workers in that sector, which also gets into this just transition question. Um, But at the same time, you know, like if we see you know, I was reading this morning about this research that's now been published on clouds disappearing and that may lead to such extreme levels of warming that we will have massive die off across the planet. Now that's down the road, obviously, but this is where we could be headed we have to take it seriously. And yet our government, because there was lots of controversy and then the project was put on hold, um, Kinder Morgan, the company uh, with one of the pipelines um, and then Trans Mountain Pipeline or with that pipeline, they they basically decided they weren't going to necessarily continue with it. Um, long and the short of it is the Canadian government bought the pipeline. And this is a government that goes around the world uh, calling itself a climate leader. They bought the pipeline and now they're saying it's going to go through. We are going to build it. And so I think we have to understand that our states, um, because of the model of economic growth that we have and and capitalist economic growth requires continued growth and continued profitability. And if you live in countries or or places that are relying on carbon intensive growth and development, then governments are necessarily going to see how they can continue to facilitate that, even though we're confronted with this existential crisis. And so I would say that unfortunately our governments in many ways have been captured by whether it's fossil fuel interests or the interests of those that benefit from business as usual. And I think Trump is an extreme case uh, where we're seeing, you know, um, Rex Tillerson being appointed to like high-level positions and those in the coal sector being, you know, appointed. And so that's not the state I want to have, but that's a reality of the state. At the same time, I think that who is able to undertake the kind of massive scale action that's required Well, that is governments. That is the nation state. They're the ones who have access to the resources. They're the ones that can make the laws, that can provide the incentives um, to do the things that have to be done. But that then requires um, the political mobilization from people to say, we're demanding something different. And that's one of the big challenges because we don't all agree. Not everyone is on board with the project of voting in you know, true climate leaders. And so it's a very difficult uh, reality. And I think the reality is, too, that our governments depend on the revenue that comes from economic growth, which is dripping with carbon. So what we're starting to see, and a lot of people are kind of feeling really fed up with waiting. And so it's very interesting to watch these movements now um, around the world in terms of, you know, say the Extinction Rebellion or the the students that are striking every Friday um, in Europe and now Australia and other places and the Sunrise Movement in the United States. And we have a, a youth rising movement here in Canada. And so it's very interesting to watch um, a lot of the young people beginning to mobilize to say, this is the planet that you're leaving us and therefore it's time we mobilize. Um, so that's one place where it's political mobilization. I would say that, you know, there is hope in that mobilization because they're putting pressure on governments. Uh, but I, I think that, you know, that's going to be one of the big challenges to change our political systems.
0: Yeah. And uh, it might be an interesting uh, fallout of this uh, current populist wave, the way that uh, the, the new way that climate politics are being politicized instead of being treated as a, uh, as a you know common issue, a universal issue, a, an issue that should not be politicized, uh, which is what we yes. mostly saw in the decades leading up to now. Uh, now
1: with this. Well, I always found it interesting. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I always found it interesting that um, with Al Gore, you know, he said that, you know, uh, climate change was not a political issue, it was a moral issue. And I always thought that was, you know, problematic to frame it that way. Um, because yes, it's a moral issue, but it's immensely political. Um, but, you know, Al Gore, I think he's he's done a lot. And so I don't want to take that away from him in terms of uh, bringing attention to the problem. But he's also somebody who has these very fairly uh, status quo technical solutions that tend to reinforce power relations as they are now, rather than requiring fundamental change. Yeah. So it's you know whenever someone says it's a moral issue, it's not political. I, I kind of cringe and say no, no, no. It's 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 primarily political.
0: Yeah. Well, let's go right to that then. I mean, so most I think it's a, a common reaction amongst many people who are terrified of climate change but uh don't really know what to do and just kind of hope things get better to uh put at least a little faith in in the technocrats of the world and uh the Elon mm-hmm. Musks of the world to to come up with something um and so many of these projects yeah. are really uh, you know intended to require as little social change as possible um do you, how much i guess do you think that society is going to have to change in order to really match up with this challenge?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, if, you know, so in October, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released their special report comparing 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming to 2 degrees Celsius of warming. And it gets cited very widely now um, with people noting the fact that they, they basically said we've got about 12 years at the time that it was published to dramatically fundamentally change the way we're doing things and to get our emissions down dramatically. If we have any of hope, any hope of staying below 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming. And, you know, they were using words like unprecedented um, in terms of the kind of change that's required And ultimately uh, the reality is the the kind of change we're talking about is unprecedented and it's massive and it's widespread and it's across all of our systems and structures. And that's just the reality of it because carbon is so ubiquitous in every aspect of our lives. And so this is the challenge. And I, and for me and I, I, you know, talk about it a lot in the book That kind of change, that kind of sweeping change is running up headlong into the vested interests that have, uh, that benefit from the status quo or from, you know, we'll do a tweak here. We'll change a few little things here, but we're fundamentally not going to change the fact that, you know, we have an economic system that requires continual growth on a limited planet. Nobody wants to truly talk about that in the halls of power because of the implications of that. You know, what do you do if you say we're not going to grow anymore? And there's very significant powerful interests as well uh, that want to keep things the same because they profit heavily from a fossil fueled world. So the fossil fuel industry is the most powerful in human history uh, with outrageous amounts of wealth and power at their disposal. And so, you know, for the past uh, number of years, I've been attending a lot of different meetings where you find government officials and policymakers, and you find lots of fossil fuel representatives. And they're all very comfortable together talking about how can we do this? And yet the same fossil fuel representatives will tell you, well, no, 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 we can't, we can't do it as quickly as they say it's going to need to happen. Uh, so we're going to have to take a slow approach. And fundamentally their model is one that is based on continuing to burn fossil fuels. And so in that sense, that's where I, I f- am not so hopeful because the nature of the the system that we've constructed, what it requires and the very powerful interests that You know, I think it's very interesting right now in Canada, watching what's happening in the U.S. around people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, because she's kind of shining a light on what is essentially a corrupt political system now, where the rich have basically bought their politicians and they can get them to do whatever they want, whether it's in the common good or not. And typically it's to ensure that they continue to profit. So the question for me is, given the, the, the sweeping change, the fundamentally deep change that's required, how are we going to change our politics? And that's where I think political mobilization is required. Because I don't think, you know, Elon Musk has an incentive to keep us driving, Let's, you know, we can make it electric, but we're still going to build all of those cars and continue to build more roads and to have everyone in vehicles and setting a preference for the individual car over investing in really good, effective public transportation, for example. And, you know, my preference is to see these, and I talk about it in the book um, coming from a- another scholar, Daniel Eldana Cohen, and he talks about democratic ecologies versus luxury ecologies. And luxury ecologies are these kinds of, you know, approaches to climate change or environmental problems that tend to benefit the elite and professional classes um, rather than being universal and being accessible to all. And so democratic ecologies are about saying, let's invest in strategies that everybody can benefit from and that kind of change the landscape of how we do things. So the question is one of the politics of getting there then,
0: yeah well you've you've um one of the things I want to make sure to ask you about before we're we're done today is the the carbon markets as you've studied so much and read about in this mm. book you know we've had uh, almost what twenty years of experience now with with carbon markets what what do you think is the lessons we can take from this, and um, are, there, are they are they going to be a part of uh, the movement going forward?
1: Yeah. So, will they be a part of the movement going forward? I would say that under the current kind of configuration of our political systems, well, yes. You know the the um, Paris Agreement, Article Six of the Paris Agreement includes the architecture. Um, It's not detailed at the moment, and that's one of the sticking points that wasn't resolved at the last uh, conference of the parties. Uh, But it lays out a framework to allow for international carbon trading. And then we see it happening, um, you know, with the EU. Uh, We see it in California. We see it in Quebec here in in Canada. In Nova Scotia, my home province, they've just introduced uh, a cap-and-trade scheme. Um, And then China and South Korea, and, you know, Mexico's getting ready. So we're seeing their proliferation around the world. Now, what we've seen with carbon markets is that um, there's a, a big interest in them, and I would say is because they require the least pain. The, you know, and this is why fossil fuel companies are lobbying for them versus regulation, for example. And so... The lessons we can take from them so far, if you look at the carbon markets that have been up and running, um, you know, UN carbon offsetting, like they began in the earlier 2000s, 2005, the European Union um, emissions trading system uh, began, and then we've seen more and more coming on board. Nowhere in not one carbon market anywhere in the world have we seen a price Anywhere near what we're told is required to incentivize a a deep change in behavior so that you get that kind of change to a lower zero carbon, you know, alternative. And so my research has shown that the reason we're not getting the high prices is because they're designed that way. Governments design them in a way that they often set the caps too high so there's more room Uh, within it to allow for more emissions. Um, They give allowances away for free to to initially, usually most of the emitters and then to heavy emitters. Um, And they allow for carbon offsets, which basically inflates caps even further. Why do they do all this? Because it means that it doesn't, it's not stringent. If you have too many carbon allowances available in a carbon market, then you've got an oversupply, meaning the price will be low. So uh, this is political, you know, it's political motivations that see them designed that way. Now, I also take issue with economists who say carbon markets are the best and most efficient and cost-effective way uh, for dealing with emissions because it lets the market decide where it's best to lower emissions. And then they get frustrated because governments, you know, aren't letting markets operate the way that they should. And I would argue that these economists they refuse to come to terms with reality. They tell us that what what's in the textbook will somehow translate into a reality that doesn't exist anywhere. Markets are always political. There's no such thing as the free market. There never has been, except in our theories. And the sooner we recognize this, the sooner we can at least be honest about what's going on here. So, I think they're going to continue, but they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing uh, from a climate change standpoint. And I also have concerns about what's required because fundamentally it's about making carbon into a commodity. And once you do that and you're putting a price on it, those that can afford to emit can, 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 can continue to do so. And so you get that inequality and that injustice again baked into it. Because it allows those with the resources to continue with business as usual uh, while others are paying the price. And then going back to my example from the beginning of our discussion, looking at poor communities in Mexico who suddenly their trees have been commodified. And so there's this interesting documentary that was produced by PBS actually called The Money Tree. And they look at um, Brazil and a number of carbon offsetting schemes for General Motors and American Electric um, to deal with emissions in the U.S. This is all part of a voluntary uh, carbon market scheme to deal with their emissions by um, doing carbon forestry in Brazil. And, you know, they show interesting examples of the, the poor... Um, member of a community who cuts down a tree to repair a roof who then gets arrested. But GM and American Electric can continue with business as usual. And the, the poor resource user who is having no impact on, on global climate change and didn't contribute to it uh, in any way is now being arrested for drawing on a resource that's required to maintain a livelihood. And so there's an injustice there that we don't talk enough about as well when we put a price on carbon and make it an exclusive right because we're giving those rights to those who can afford it. Um, And so I don't want to boil the world down to one giant market where we just commodify everything and we go according to the logic of whoever's got the resources can buy the right to do what they want to do and, you know, everyone else can fend for themselves. So yeah, I, I think we're going to see that project continue, but um, they're not doing what, what we need them to do from an environmental standpoint or a social or ecological justice standpoint.
0: Well, before we run out of talk time, is there anything about this book that we haven't covered that you want to make sure is here in the interview?
1: I think, you know, we, we've talked about a lot of it, but I think, you know, for me, one of the main goals of the book was to kind of challenge the idea that we can we can continue along with business as usual and we can continue talking about economic growth as though there isn't a problem there um and we can figure it all out and i wanted to kind of provide that history to show that you know we have to honestly talk about our economic system and what it requires um, with growth and profitability. And we have to talk about how that economic system and its power relations are then really kind of shaping the, the so-called solutions that we're seeing being developed around the world now in many cases. And especially things like natural gas. We see you know, many political actors and powerful actors will talk about it as a bridge fuel. It's this great thing that will get us to a low carbon future. And I would turn around and say, this is a fossil fuel. We should be going with renewables that are zero carbon, not building infrastructure that will lock in more carbon emissions for the next 20, 30, 40 years. And we often don't talk about the methane that actually gets released as part of the natural gas um, process of extraction and, and production and which often makes it worse in terms of climate change because methane is a more potent greenhouse gas than carbon. It just stays, uh, it, its life in the atmosphere is shorter. So I want us to be able to think critically about the solutions that are on offer um, so that we can actually begin to think about climate change as the political problem it is um, and not act as individual consumers, but to start to see ourselves as political citizens. Who should be thinking about the politics of this and how we can act collectively to pressure governments to change what it is that they're doing.
0: Well, that was really uh, well said. Um, well, thank you so much uh, for this interview. Uh, what are you working on now?
1: Uh, well, I'm continuing, you know, to, to do the work on um, carbon markets. And so I, I'm actually working on a, a paper right now that, you know, in writing the book, I, I uh, these ideas, I was thinking about them, and so I'm doing it in greater detail now, but I'm thinking about this question of carbon markets and um, expert knowledge. And, and when I say expert knowledge, um, you know, I want to kind of problematize the idea of of expert knowledge. So what makes an expert in terms of those that speak in favor of carbon markets? And And we find that often the expert is... You know, the technocrat, um, policymakers with an interest in, you know, kind of minimizing the impact of climate change. It's the fossil fuel companies, it's the um, trade associations, the industrials. They become the ones who can speak about carbon markets and provide the expert knowledge on carbon markets. And then the markets themselves are so complicated. Uh, very few people. Uh, you know, are actually immersed in what it takes to make a carbon market, um, and how complicated that actually is. And I would argue that, given the complexity and um, the the kind of difficulty in understanding what these things are, it closes off opportunities for well-informed democratic debate on whether these are the the strategies we should actually be pursuing and so i'm i'm exploring these themes around you know the complexity and and what goes into creating these markets that very few people understand and then who gets to have the authority to speak on behalf of these markets and i mean authority whereby those in power actually listen to them because if you're a critic they don't want to hear it um but you know if if you're the right kind of person um in the right position of power everybody wants to listen to you so I, I think it's time to have a discussion about, you know, those knowledge making processes that are going into carbon markets as well, um, and how they kind of fetishize carbon in a way that it becomes really difficult to understand. And that's not what we need either. So trying to democratize the debate.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I can't wait for that work to come out. I mean, this is, uh, it sounds incredibly <laughs> Thank fascinating. You. Uh, well, thank you so much for speaking to me today, and um, I look forward to seeing you work. Thanks
1: for having me. I really enjoyed it.